You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Men were called to do three times a year in the days of the Old Testament. The middle one is a psalm of Solomon. On each side of it, there are two psalms of David. The other psalms come from anonymous writers, perhaps uh, written on different occasions, but gathered together uh, in some kind of order, it seems to me, for the purpose of pilgrimage. And uh, so, you can imagine if you're cold this evening, just think of yourself as marching to Zion and uh, inwardly by mental transference of power, uh, you will begin to warm up during the course of the message. Or if that fails, then I don't know if you've ever watched uh, two people in conversation with one another and you, you suddenly realize that uh, when one person speaks and makes facial gesticulations, the other person responds with identical facial gesticulation. So if you're really cold and I use various gesticulations as you take in the word this evening, just make those gesticulations back and uh, you will soon warm up. Well, Psalm 122. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. We've come now to the third of these Psalms of Ascent, and this particular one reminds me of words that ministers hear from time to time that is music in their ears. The words, I really love coming to church, and I really love my church. When people say that kind of thing, your instinct is to think, then there is hope for such a church. When going to church is a laborious burden, uh, an imposed duty upon us, and there is little joy, then there is little hope for such a church. But no matter how small, or for that matter, how large, when people begin to say to one another, don't you love coming to church these days? And people say, yes, I've, I've never loved it so much in all my life. Then you think there is a future for a fellowship like that. That's really what this particular psalm is all about. Uh, You have to imagine people 
at uh, the earlier periods of the Psalms not having a local church. It's interesting, I think, how little one knows about how did people worship when there was only big church in Jerusalem? Did they do it just in families before there were local synagogues? Just exactly what did they do? But whatever they did, coming to Jerusalem was going to church. You and I pray at home, we pray in other places, we meet other Christians, we may study the Bible in small groups, but coming to the assembly of the saints week by week, that is what refreshes the whole of our Christian life. And imagine that uh, you experienced big church only three times in the year. If you're a real Christian and you're sick for a couple of Sundays, uh, you really understand what it is to miss the fellowship of God's people. If you've been in a congregation, as many people have, where God's Word is not taught, where God's people apparently do not pray, where everything is in decline, and then you find yourself in worship in a living, vibrant church where the Word is taught, where people are open-hearted towards one another, have a concern to reach the lost, then you say to yourself or you say to the people, I really had forgotten what I was missing. Seen the advert for Kellogg's Conflicts, where the person takes a couple of spoonfuls of cornflakes and then says, I'd forgotten how good they were. And at this point in the story of these psalms, it looks to me as though the psalmist has now arrived in Jerusalem. Psalm 120, he was thinking about going, but his situation was bleak and gloomy. Psalm 121 begins with the question, there are, there are so many dangers. It, it's, it's difficult. Should I really bother going? And then he receives encouragements from those who have gone before. And now this psalm begins with the arrival in Jerusalem. I remember as a little boy, whenever we went away on holiday somewhere new, the first thing I did on the Saturday night when I arrived, actually the first thing I did was to try and find out where the golf course was. But I would look around and, uh, and see everything. What does this week or two weeks, what are they going to be like? And you can imagine the pilgrim, even if he had been in Jerusalem time and time again, he, he gets back to Jerusalem and he looks round as we look round places with which we have some familiarity and wonders if everything is the same as he last remembered, if there is something new looking forward to the week and then anticipating the blessing of God. And that seems to be the scenery of Psalm 122. And it has three movements, really, doesn't it? Uh, the first begins with the words, I rejoiced, in verses 1 and 2. And then the second changes a little. Jerusalem is. He's, he's describing Jerusalem, and he does this in verses 3 through 5. And then he 
turns our attention to the burden that this experience has produced in him. Pray for the peace, for the shalom, which is one of the big words as we've seen in these Psalms. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. So, in verses 1 and 2, he describes the joy of arriving at the house of God. There is this uh, outbreak of rejoicing. Uh, those of you who know Parry's famous coronation anthem, uh, written, I guess, about a hundred years ago, that uh, picks up these words, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And the, the whole anthem begins with a kind of emotional outburst of, of relief, release, and joy, and praise, because the psalmist is conscious of the privilege that it is to belong to the people of God. If you know the Psalms, then you will know that some of the Psalms belong to a category sometimes described as the Zion Psalms, because they focus their praise on what God has done in giving Jerusalem, in providing them with this place of worship on Mount Zion. And uh, this psalm, in a sense, reflects the language and the thought patterns of some of these psalms. Um, these psalms are, are psalms that describe the city of Jerusalem not from the perspective of town planning and geography, but from the perspective of God's promise and purpose. Um, you may think about that uh, in connection with this building or in connection with other buildings. People who don't belong here, they, they have no memories, they have no sense of how God has met with you here and what God may have done in your life through the fellowship of God's people here. And so, they look at the building and they see a building but you see and you feel something quite different. So, for example, the psalmist in Psalm 48 describes Jerusalem as though it were by far the most beautiful city in all the world, the joy of the whole earth. Now, uh, the whole earth was not rejoicing in Jerusalem. Uh, People who came to Jerusalem, some people came to Jerusalem simply to destroy it. They saw no beauty there any more than, for example, Isaiah tells us that people would see no beauty in the Lord Jesus Christ when He came. And so, we need to understand that the language that's often used is, is not the language of the buildings, but what the buildings represent not the language about the city, but about what they see as they view that city in terms of the purposes God has and the promises that He has given that are related to that city. 
And I think the same may be said here. We can imagine that the author of Psalm 122, it's a psalm of David, uh, understands that there is a faith way of looking at church, as well as a town planning way of looking at buildings. And it's within that context that it's such a blessing to this psalmist to, to look round the people with whom he's come and pilgrimage and, and say, I can hardly believe this has happened to me. Our feet are standing within Jerusalem. Ever of that experience in worship? Um, you're engaged in worship with a company of people, and you remember your past, which for some of us we would rather forget. And you say, I can hardly believe that I'm standing here. And this is the sense that he has as he gives us this uh, wonderful sense of arriving at the house of God. I sometimes uh, have said to people who are not Christians, you know, the church of Jesus Christ is a bit like Doctor Who's TARDIS. Now, I haven't seen Doctor Who for many a long year, but he used to use an old London police box to travel the universe. Is he still doing that? Uh, he can't do that for much longer because no one will know what it is. And uh, I am actually old enough to have witnessed the first Doctor Who episode live on BBC television and heard the noises. And the fascinating thing about uh, the TARDIS was it just looked like an old, bashed-up London police box. But the curious thing was, inside, it was the most extraordinary space and time travel ship, and it was far larger on the inside than it was on the outside. Isn't that the case? It was, it was far more attractive on the inside than the outside, and it was bigger on the inside than the outside. And uh, that's what it means to belong to the people of God. From the outside, it doesn't look very much, and it looks awfully small. Do you know, as soon as you're on the inside, how many people are we away from knowing everybody in the world? Is it seven or eight? It's probably on the increase. If you're a Christian, you're not so many people away from having contact with every single Christian in the world. If you belong to a living church, you know things about parts of the world that almost everybody else you know has never heard of. Why? Because you've been brought into a fellowship that is far bigger on the inside than it ever seemed on the outside. And that's the experience of everyone who becomes a believer, isn't it? Being a Christian belonging to the church doesn't seem particularly attractive from the outside. And uh, as people used to say in Scotland, there is a sense in which church is better felt than taught. Because when you're on the inside, and sometimes I'm deeply impressed by the testimony of people who have hated the gospel 
been opposed to the gospel lifestyle who have encountered a living church and had to say, for all I hated it, there was something, there was something supernatural there that I couldn't deny. It was as though there these people had discovered how life really ought to be lived and enjoyed. And this is his experience as he arrives at the house of God. I remember a, an elder in a large church uh, in the United States of America, uh, with whom I was standing as this church received 40 or 50 new members into the congregation, and he, he turned to me with, a, with an, a deep sense of pride. He was beaming at this scene, and he turned to me and he said, don't you think this is the greatest church in all the world? I remember thinking, no, I don't actually. <laughs> I think the church I belong to is the greatest church in the world, not because I belong to it, but because it's the church to which I do belong. And I thought, thank God that He thinks that about His church, because there's a sense in which if God has put you down in a living fellowship of His people, then isn't that, isn't that one of the splendid privileges of being a believer? There is nowhere else in the world you would rather be than in the church in which God has set you down. And so, you too can say, you know, for me, this is just the greatest church in the world. I mean, it so happens this church was the greatest church in the world because it was the only church in the world. But what he experiences is what is offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, he speaks about his arrival at the house of God, and then in verses 3 through 5, you'll notice that he gives us a very striking description of the city of God. And again, we need to remember he's not just talking here about bricks and mortar, even when he is talking about the buildings. He's explaining to us why it was such a joy to get to church, to be part of the fellowship, to share in the experience of the pilgrimage and the worship of the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, you'll notice that he has several comments that he makes. The first is this, that he rejoices in the church in Jerusalem because physically it symbolizes the close-knit fellowship of God's people. You notice what he says about the building in verse 3, Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. Now, if this guy comes from uh, out in the rural areas, then that actually wouldn't be a major attraction to him. You know, if you, if you come from a rural area coming into the city, and uh, if you're a student living in a hall of residence when you're, you know, you can hardly move three feet without bumping into people, that can be quite claustrophobic. The beauty he sees in the way in which the, the houses in Jerusalem are, are built together is not just a physical beauty. It's an emblematic 
beauty. It's symbolic of the reality of the community of God's people and, and their closeness. It's actually the picture that's picked up in the New Testament, really, when Peter says actually what God is doing to us when He brings us into the fellowship of His people is He's making us living stones, and He's building us together so that we will be the temple of the Lord, and the Lord will come and dwell with us and meet with us as we gather together as His people. And uh, sometimes that's difficult and sore, isn't it? Um, you know, if, uh, if you're a stonemason, it's fairly easy to work with stone because, you know, you may hear a few sounds when you're chipping away, but uh, stones don't wriggle and squeal and say, I don't like this other stone. Uh, this is very uncomfortable for me, and I, I am not going to have anything to do with these three stones that you're trying to fit me together with. And so, there's a picture of, of the church being built by the Lord in a way that shows the unity that we have in Jesus Christ, that He brings us together, and then He shapes us together so that there's, there's a kind of real unity among God's people that you will not see in any other community. That's the point. Trusting, caring, loving relationships, praying for one another, embracing in our hearts the needs of each other. But not only is there a close-knit fellowship, as he describes the city, he also says that there is a diversity in the membership, closeness in the fellowship, but diversity in the membership. Verse 4, that is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. Of course, tribe is family, isn't it? He's thinking about the, the tribes of Israel, and they are, they are families, and uh, they have family characteristics. And he has this marvelous picture of the Lord watching the tribes come from their, their different areas, the families come, and gathering together. And they've got different names, and uh, their genes are a wee bit different, and they've developed their, their local personalities and their local customs. They're not all the same. They're not cloned. And so, when they come together, there's a beautiful mosaic of God's people. And that, of course, is the point. Uh, Peter, again, when he talks about what the Lord is doing in the church, speaks about the, the multicolored grace of God. And uh, Paul, when he speaks about the wisdom of God being displayed in the church in Ephesians 3.10, he speaks about the multicolored wisdom of God in this marvelous unity that is displayed in diversity and this phenomenal diversity that comes together in the kind of beautiful mosaic of unity that the people of God are. 
I wonder if you've ever uh, maybe in Christian Union in university or coming to a church and, and you've had some encounter with someone and you know, I don't know, there's any way I'm going to get on with him. And then as God works, brings you together in a mutual acceptance because Christ has accepted you both. You become devoted friends in Jesus Christ. And it's this diversity that is uh, remarkable. I mean, take our, our little church here and its diversity. We have Scots here. Uh, we even have uh, one or two Glaswegians here, uh, tolerating people from Edinburgh here. But we've got, we've got Irish people here. We've got red-headed people here. We've got, we've got English people here. We have Italian. We have Americans and others, the Far East, the old Soviet bloc, in our church, all one in Christ Jesus. And so, he speaks about close-knit fellowship and the diversity of membership, and uh, then, of course, in addition to that, very beautifully, he speaks about their experience of real worship. That is what holds them together in the Lord. He says, this is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. It's not a form of self-expression. It's according to the statute given to Israel. And he's speaking about this idea that the people of God, when they are gathered together in unity in all their diversity, are there to give expression to the multicolored perfections of God's being. And that's a magnificent thing, to be able to see among God's people a particular reflection of one of God's attributes to see in some believers uh, an extraordinary patience, to meet in other believers a wonderful wisdom, to see in some believers a, a deep holiness, to encounter in believers expressions of the love of Jesus Christ for His people. And none of us is normal yet as we are being transformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's, it's almost as though we get some bits and not other bits. I mean, the picture here, in a sense, is, is uh, expressing to us that it's only when we are united together that there are going to be enough manifestations of the attributes of God in our praise and prayer that the wholeness of Jesus Christ will become manifested to people outside of the fellowship. And that brings him, doesn't it, to, as he brings the psalm to a close, not only does he give us this sense of joy in arriving in Jerusalem, and then this marvelous sense of the, the wonder of belonging to Jerusalem, 
but he tells us what his aspiration is for Jerusalem. And in this psalm, he focuses particularly on shalom, peace. This is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because when we began this series, we noted in Psalm number 120 that he was in a part of the country where there was no shalom. He was for God's peace and grace, for God's gospel. But everyone around him, whenever he was for Christ, we might put it, whenever he was for Christ, it was just then that people seemed to become hostile, and they were for war. And he's thinking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the only place in the cosmos where the high priest pronounces the ironic benediction that there will be shalom among God's people. And that's why here he's, I think he's sensing, you know, I felt I didn't belong there. I felt I was an alien there. There was this constant rubbing friction hostility. And then I came among God's people, and uh, I sensed I belonged here. There was shalom here. I said, so that's what we need to keep praying for. We need to keep praying that the church will really be the church, the place where God pronounces the blessing of His shalom upon His people. And you notice He says it in verse 6, pray for the peace, the shalom of Jerusalem. Verse 7, may there be shalom within your walls. Verse 8, for the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, shalom be within you. Shalom, shalom, shalom. I mean, if you really wanted to be whole Bible in viewing this statement, you might almost think of this in terms of the blessing of each person of the Trinity, the shalom of the Father, the shalom of the Son, the shalom of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the well-being that God gives to His people. But then it's really interesting that within that context, He focuses on two things, doesn't He? The first is in verse 6, may those who love you be secure. May there be shalom within your walls and security within your citadels. And then in verses 8 and 9, for the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, shalom be within you for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. I will seek your prosperity. So, he's praying for security and prosperity. Now, what's so strange about that? Well, isn't that what shalom is? You don't have shalom unless there is security, and you don't have shalom unless there is well-being, prosperity. So, so why is he so nitpicking about this? Why does he focus down on these two aspects? Um, because it's these two aspects that he sees are so absolutely vital, that there should be security, that there should be protection for the fellowship. 
because, of course, he understands that it will be under attack. Remember how Jesus puts it in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will seek to overcome it, but they will be unsuccessful. The shalom of God's people is always under attack, sometimes from the outside, sometimes from the Trojan horse on the inside. This is, this is like Jesus praying for the unity of the church and saying, Father, I have kept them in Your name. Now, Father, You keep them in my name, and Father, I'm praying not that You would take them out of the world where they will be under attack, but that You will keep them safe and secure in the world against attack. And prosperity, what's prosperity? Prosperity is growth, really. That's what he's praying for. That the church will grow. And it's interesting in these Zion Psalms that they, they have a tendency, as, for example, the prophet Isaiah has a tendency, to move from this picture of the tribes coming from all over the land and making their way uh, up to Jerusalem to see that that is simply a foretaste of future growth. And even the psalmists speak about the tribes, not just of the land going up, but people coming from all over the world and coming up to Jerusalem so that in this sense, Jerusalem grows, not just grows stronger, but grows even in numbers as uh, men and women, young people from all over the world. Here's here's this picture of them flooding into the temple in Jerusalem, which, of course, in the purposes of God is the ultimate Old Testament symbol of Jesus Christ, who is the true temple created by the Heavenly Father, into whom we are being built as living stones by the master stonemason, the Holy Spirit. It's a glorious picture of what it means to belong to the fellowship of God's people. Now, let's close this evening two things. The first thing is this. I've said, you know, whenever we read the Psalms, we should ask ourselves, what would Jesus have made of this Psalm? And actually, we're not left in any doubt what Jesus would make of this Psalm. Do you remember when He was making His last pilgrimage to Jerusalem, coming up for the feast of the Passover, described in this instance in the gospel according to Luke? And it's very clear that these psalms are in his mind. And we're told as he approached Jerusalem, you just imagine Jesus, he's coming up from the country. And uh, as with some places you know, you turn the corner and, and there you catch your first sight of the city. And Jesus turns the corner and he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, 
had only known on this day what would bring you shalom. And that's the word he would have used. He's thinking about this psalm, isn't he? And the prayer that there would be shalom in Jerusalem. And that he was the one who had come to bring shalom to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem would seek to destroy him. And then, in fact, Jerusalem itself would be destroyed and no longer be the most beautiful city in all the world, but uh, thereafter would be a kind of symbol of strife among the nations. Because they didn't understand that it was only a symbol and that the reality had come among them. And like so many people before and afterwards, they chose the symbol rather than the reality. That's what he made of this sound. That's why when he returned that Easter Sunday evening to his disciples, and, uh, although he had met various ones, you remember, earlier on in the day, they were all gathered again uh, in the room where presumably he had met with them before, and Jesus appeared among them. Do you remember the first word he spoke? Shalom. Shalom. It's almost as though he is saying, um, it is only in me crucified for your sins and risen to be your Lord, that all that Jerusalem, the city of Shalom, was intended to symbolize becomes true and real. And the other obvious application is this. If, uh, if this is what the psalmist said to his contemporaries they needed to pray for, then this is what our psalmist, the Lord Jesus, wants us to pray for to pray for the security of our fellowship and to pray for the expansiveness of our fellowship so that there will be others who would just never dream that this would happen to them, but some of us never dreamt it would happen to us. It will come among us, and as they are among us and God works in their lives and begins to draw them to faith in Jesus Christ, they are standing in our little Jerusalem and saying to themselves, I can't believe I'm actually standing here and loving it. I have a friend who is a very senior minister who had a young man start coming to the church, and he was gloriously brought to faith in Jesus Christ, and he wanted to become a member of the church. And so, he met with some of the elders, and they asked him to tell them the story. He said, well, I started coming here about six months ago, and uh, you were singing these dreadful hymns. And he had the audacity to say the sermons were so long, and they were so irrelevant, and people were so strange, and it was all so boring. He said, I don't know what has happened to you all since I started coming here, but now you're singing, you're, you've, you're choosing really great hymns, 
and people are so friendly. And then to my friend and your sermons, they're so, they've become so interesting, and they had the wisdom uh, not to rebuke him for his foolishness, but quietly to rejoice that his feet were standing within Jerusalem, and he hardly understood how gloriously his life had been changed. And this is, this is the prospect. This is the hope. This is, this is the confidence this psalm gives us if it is true for us that we just love being part of this church. Well, may God bring that to pass more and more. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You in Your mercy that You have brought us into contact with the living church of Jesus Christ. We praise You that uh, He is the temple into whom we are being built like so many different colored stones. Thank You that there is a place for each of us and for all of us. Thank You for the way You in Your providence mold us and shape us, and by Your Word You teach us so that we are, we are closely knit together. We pray more and more that these wonderful spiritual graces may very naturally emerge among us, and that it may be said of us as it was said of the early Christians, see how these Christians love one another. Make us secure, we pray. Give us insight and wisdom to see where the evil one may seek to destroy Your work among us. And prosper us, we pray. May there be such shalom among us that others will, will smell the attractive presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in our fellowship and be drawn to Him. So, we pray for this blessing, for the shalom of our Jerusalem. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.